Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. An ancient letter that could incriminate America's most powerful secret society in a heinous crime. This letter describes in graphic detail that Skull and Bones had desecrated the remains of an important historical figure. A revolutionary device that sparked a bitter war between two of the world's most famous inventors. Edison was a highly competitive individual. He never backed away from a fight. And a 120-year-old cauldron that brewed a disaster that destroyed a city. This is the pot that changed Seattle forever. Across the United States, in the nation's most revered institutions, our celebrated history is on display. Wondrous treasures from the past. Bizarre relics. But behind every amazing artifact is another tale to be told and a secret waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. New Haven, Connecticut, home to one of the nation's oldest and most esteemed centers of learning, Yale University. At the heart of this renowned Ivy League campus, the Sterling Memorial Library. Cataloged here is a prized collection of rare and historic manuscripts. But the accidental discovery of one particular document hidden in these archives for nearly a hundred years, threatens to expose a potentially sinister side to this university. If the events in this letter are real, then this is one of the nation's darkest secrets. The letter describes a sacrilegious crime purportedly carried out by a group of Yale students in the final days of World War I. This was no fraternity prank. 
but a blasphemous deed enacted by members of the nation's most powerful secret society, Skull and Bones. This organization is a conspiracy theorist's dream because it has tentacles in every facet of U.S. society. Despite the dark rumors that swirl around this powerful group, virtually nothing is known about it. Members are sworn to secrecy, and they've maintained an alarming amount of mystique for nearly 200 years. However, the discovery of this letter threatens to expose one of Skull and Bones' most closely guarded secrets. What diabolical act does it recount? And what does it reveal about America's most secret society? 1832. Inspired by the famous German cult of the Illuminati, a Yale undergraduate named William Russell found Skull and Bones, a secret society whose mission it's claimed is to rule the world. Alexandra Robbins, author of a renowned book on Skull and Bones, has interviewed well over 100 of its members. Skull and Bones' only purpose is to get its members into positions of power. Skull and Bones can count among its members three presidents, including William Howard Taft, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush, and even scores of congressmen, senators, Supreme Court chief justices, and many CIA operatives. Some believe that influential Bonesmen, as they are known, have surreptitiously orchestrated some of the most significant events in American history. But the chance discovery of an old letter, allegedly written from one Bonesman to another, threatens to pull back the curtain on this ominous group. This letter describes in graphic detail that Skull and Bones had desecrated the remains of an important historical figure. The story begins in May. 1918 at Fort Sill in Oklahoma, where a small group of Bonesmen, all Army captains from Yale, are stationed together during World War I. The small group of Bonesmen included Prescott Bush, father of President George H.W. Bush and grandfather of George W. Bush. According to this letter, the friends had learned that the base's cemetery contained the remains of the revered Native American leader, Geronimo. And together, they plot to rob Geronimo's grave. Skull and Bones would have seen Geronimo's skull as a desirable item for them to steal because they viewed him as one of the greatest warriors in U.S. history. The venture is risky. If caught, the young captains could be court-martialed. But the temptation is too much for the Bonesmen. This letter describes in great detail how members of Skull and Bones plotted this heist very carefully. In late May, the co-conspirators are said to have broken into the Fort Cemetery and headed for Geronimo's grave. They took turns standing guard while they dug into the grave and they brought out a bridle, a saddle horn, femur bones, and finally the prize that they were looking for, Geronimo's skull. According to the letter, the macabre trophy is taken to Yale, to the Skull and Bones headquarters, a near windowless building known as the Tomb. There, it is thought to have become part of the group's occultish rites. Skull and Bones has some pretty strange rituals. I got a hold of a script for initiation, and many members of Skull and Bones confirmed this for me. 
They have to drink fake blood out of a skull. They have to swear oaths of secrecy. And some members dress in strange, death-like costumes. When discovery of the letter is made public in 2006, Skull and Bones suggests that it's a fabrication to smear the organization. They also deny having any of Geronimo's remains. But Alexandra Robbins begs to differ. There's absolutely no reason to believe that this letter is anything but authentic. Among the details in this letter is the Skull and Bones lingo. They call members of Skull and Bones knights, and they abbreviate it K-T, which is what Skull and Bones does. People who were not member of Skull and Bones at the time probably would not have known to describe each other that way. Members of Geronimo's family are also convinced of the letter's veracity and have even filed a lawsuit against Skull and Bones demanding the return of the warrior's remains. As of yet, they've been unsuccessful. Geronimo's descendants' lawsuit has been dismissed, so this story is still up in the air. To this day, neither Yale University nor federal law has been able to force open the door to America's most infamous secret society. We may never know what actually goes on behind those broad iron doors. Skull and Bones has maintained such an air of secrecy for centuries now. While this letter at Yale's Sterling Memorial Library provides compelling testimony, the true fate of Geronimo's remains may forever be sealed inside this tomb. Nearly 900 miles away in Chicago, one of mankind's most important inventions has its own sinister story to tell. How did this machine spark a war between two of the world's greatest inventors and forever change the way we live? The True Tale, up next on Mysteries at the Museum. Chicago, Illinois. The biggest city in the Midwest is also home to the nation's largest science museum. Inside the Museum of Science and Industry, 14 acres of interactive exhibits and displays showcase the history of human innovation. All the technology we use today came out of somebody's imagination. But for the chief curator, Kathleen McCarthy, there is one artifact here that transformed human life more than any other. This piece became the driving force for the world we live in today. Made of steel, it weighs about 100 pounds and sits atop a series of protruding wires. A groundbreaking prototype, it's one of the first motors to generate the electrical power that most of us take for granted. But this mechanical relic was once at the center of a bitter dispute. This particular artifact was a key component of a very fierce technological battle. This motor sparked a cutthroat competition between two of the world's greatest inventors, each racing to become the first to distribute electricity to millions of homes across America. Before Windows versus Macintosh, before Blu-ray versus DVD, there was AC versus DC. Who won the War of the Currents? And how did the victor utterly transform our world? 1879, New York City, 
The world is on the verge of what may be the biggest technological breakthrough in modern history. The natural phenomenon of electricity has awed scientists since the time of the ancient Greeks. But as the 19th century draws to a close, a new chapter in human history is about to begin. One of the world's most prolific inventors, Thomas Edison, has designed a system to convert electricity into power. Thomas Edison, he saw electricity as the thing that could really change the world. Everyone knew his invention, the light bulb, and his nickname was the wizard. To produce and distribute electricity, the wizard develops an operating system called direct current, or DC. And by 1882, his first DC power plant in Manhattan is churning out electricity to street lamps and private homes within a half mile of the station. Over the next several years, his business rapidly expands to 121 power plants across the country. Edison had monopoly on the electrical business. Edison may be the king of electricity, but he isn't the only player in the power game. Another brilliant inventor has been pursuing an alternative to Edison's DC system. In 1888, Nikola Tesla, a Serbian-born engineer working in New York, is promoting this motor. It's his latest invention. What was unique about it is it used AC, alternating current. Alternating current was being developed and experimented with, but it wasn't until Tesla invented this revolutionary new motor that actually alternating current could be used practically. The genius behind Tesla's induction motor is a rotating magnetic field that generates a more powerful and versatile electrical current. To many scientists of the time, Tesla's innovation gives AC a distinct advantage over DC. Alternating current could be cheaply transmitted great distances. DC couldn't. Up to this point, Edison had only transmitted direct current about half a mile. In contrast, AC could travel hundreds of miles. In 1888, Nikola Tesla partners with the powerful industrialist George Westinghouse to market AC as a viable alternative to DC. In doing so, he sparks the War of the Currents. At stake are the lucrative rights to distribute electricity to cities all across America. Edison was a highly competitive individual. When Edison saw somebody venturing into his territory, he never backed away from a fight. Unable to challenge alternating current on its technical merits, Edison mounts a negative PR campaign to turn public opinion against it. His message is one-sided and simple. Alternating current kills. To demonstrate the dangers of AC for the press, Edison subjects animals, stray dogs and cats, even an unwanted circus elephant, to lethal jolts of alternating current. In 1890, the wizard amps up his scare campaign to a shocking new level. New York decided to eliminate hanging as a form of capital punishment and had the idea to switch to electricity. So Edison jumped on the chance to demonstrate an electric chair that was based on alternating current. Edison's team goes so far as to use his competitor's equipment to develop the world's first electric chair. Edison tried to have people refer to death by electrocution as being Westinghouse. Edison has taken this battle to the extreme. 
But what he wasn't telling the public was that direct current was also deadly. Aghast at Edison's tactics, Tesla and Westinghouse quietly strike back against the wizard. Tesla and Westinghouse, well, the smear campaign was going on, just continued working on developing their business, and they were gaining a really strong foothold. As a matter of fact, in October of 1888, they sold more systems than Edison had that whole entire year. The rivals battle it out for five more years before the War of the Currents reaches its final showdown. That arena is the 1893 Chicago World's Fair an international exposition dedicated to new technology. This was going to be the world's first electrified World's Fair. Winning the bid to light this World's Fair was a huge opportunity. It was the chance to prove that one's system could power an entire city. Both Edison's and Tesla's technologies will be represented. But only one inventor will earn the chance to light the fair and show the world which system, AC or DC, is the chosen standard. On May 1st, 1893, in front of a jam-packed opening night crowd, President Grover Cleveland, with one momentous flick of a switch, illuminates 100,000 lamps, all powered safely by alternating current, proclaiming Nikola Tesla victorious in the War of the Currents. Tesla and Westinghouse ultimately were the successful bidder because their system really was more economical. It's a historic moment, brilliantly showcasing the world's first city of light. The public was in complete awe. And it's not surprising that the most amazingly illuminated building was the electricity building, which featured the groundbreaking motor that Tesla had invented that was poised now to change the world. While direct current still finds its uses, alternating current is adopted as the standard for consumer use, and it continues to drive every facet of industry and society. Here at Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry, for all to behold, is the motor that helped usher in the electric age. Nearly a century later, another brilliant inventor unveils a new machine to the world. This car was supposed to revolutionize the auto industry, but instead, it destroyed its creator. Find out why next on Mysteries at the Museum. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Reno, Nevada. Gambling isn't the only entertainment in this desert oasis. Inside the National Automobile Museum of America, four massive galleries are filled with some of the most luxurious and legendary cars in the world. And of the 200 dazzling vehicles on display, this is one of the rarest, and for some, the most coveted. It stands out from the crowd in the fact that it's plated in solid gold. It's also uh, quite a surprise for many young people who've never seen something uh, adorned quite that way. It's the DeLorean, an ultra-modern sports car best remembered for its starring role in the 1985 Hollywood blockbuster, Back to the Future. But the real-life story of this revolutionary vehicle is more dramatic than any movie. When the first model rolled off the assembly line 30 years ago, it was one of the most anticipated, most hyped cars to ever hit the market. So how did the DeLorean become one of the biggest blunders in automotive history? What's the real story behind the Back to the Future car? Detroit, Michigan, 1964. 39-year-old John DeLorean is the chief engineer at General Motors Pontiac Division. Oh, John Z. DeLorean, born and raised in Detroit, probably had motor oil in his veins. Uh, he, was, he was born to be in the automobile industry. That year, DeLorean unveils what is considered America's first muscle car, the Pontiac GTO. It's an instant classic, and DeLorean is hailed as a visionary. It's been said that, you know, John DeLorean could sell you anything. And once he looked at you in the, with those big brown eyes, it was all over with. Under his leadership, Pontiac sales tripled and it's widely expected that DeLorean will become GM's next president. But this cocky automotive maverick has other plans. 
1973, John DeLorean shocks the Motor City quitting GM to start his own car company. His new venture, DeLorean Motor Cars, promises to revolutionize the auto industry with a groundbreaking new sports car, one that would combine the performance of BMW with the style of Corvette. Flashy car is what John DeLorean was all about, and uh, you know, it, his past had told him that that's what would sell. To create a new car line, John DeLorean needs startup money, and lots of it. He immediately puts his charm and charisma to work to secure private financing. His biggest coup is convincing the British government to build him a factory. The British government felt it couldn't fail. They invested a whole lot of money into the thing to build the plant and get the jobs. 100 million pounds of British public funds are allocated to DeLorean. Provided his factory is built in the economically depressed, war-torn province of Northern Ireland. DeLorean had everything he needed. All he had to do was produce automobiles. In January 1981, the first DeLoreans are rolling off the assembly line. And to all who see them, the car's appearance is astounding. The DeLorean features a distinctive brushed steel body and gull-wing doors that open at the touch of a door handle. It was innovative, of course. It was certainly stylish for its time. The public was eagerly awaiting this new toy. With advance orders pouring in, DeLorean delivers his first batch of cars to U.S. dealerships in just four months. Sales took off uh, initially certainly very well. The product gets out into the public hands, and then you start having problems. Soon, a growing number of DeLorean owners begin complaining about mechanical problems and design flaws. It doesn't perform worth a darn, you know, it's stodgy, it's slow. Initially, blame is placed on the inexperienced Northern Irish workforce who had received minimal training in DeLorean's rush to get his product to the marketplace. Bad press spreads like wildfire. They didn't sell. After six months, only 3,000 cars have been sold. DeLorean Motor Cars is teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. DeLorean was certainly in a bind uh, for cash in order to bail the company out and continue production. In a last-ditch effort to garner publicity and spur sales, this special edition DeLorean is conceived and plated in 24-karat gold. Gold-plated DeLoreans were offered through the American Express catalog at a price tag of $85,000 each. But the pricey promotion also flops, and only two gold-plated DeLoreans are ever made. Determined to save his floundering company, DeLorean desperately looks for new sources of financing. So we enter into some shady dealings here. On October 19, 1982, John DeLorean takes a meeting with some men in a Los Angeles hotel room. They propose a risky but quick way for DeLorean to raise a large amount of money. Cocaine trafficking. DeLorean agrees to their proposal. Little does he know, he is the target of an FBI sting. When the former wizard of the Detroit auto world is charged with drug conspiracy, the British government pulls the plug on his factory. 
A shattered DeLorean faces up to 15 years in federal prison. But in August 1984, in a courtroom surprise, DeLorean is acquitted when the jury decides he was the victim of entrapment by the FBI. Of course, his image is tarnished. It's too late to pick up the pieces and start over again. Less than 9,000 DeLoreans have made it off the production line, and the car seems doomed to fade into obscurity. But the following year, the down-and-out DeLorean makes a Hollywood-style comeback, cast as a time-traveling supercar in the blockbuster movie Back to the Future. In spite of its failings, the DeLorean is immortalized in celluloid, while the real thing remains parked here at the National Automobile Museum of America, a dramatic piece of automotive history for all to enjoy. 2,700 miles east in New York City, another legendary vehicle is on display. Aboard this warship turned museum are the shattered remains of a devastating weapon that nearly destroyed her. Coming up next on Mysteries at the Museum. New York, New York. One of the city's most popular attractions is the intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum. Since opening in 1982, over 10 million patrons have visited its one-of-a-kind collection. And with so much to see, it's easy to forget that this massive museum was once a fully functioning Essex-class aircraft carrier. The Intrepid served in World War II. She served three tours of duty in Vietnam. Throughout the course of her history, over 31 years, we estimate that somewhere between 50 to 55,000 people served aboard Intrepid. Today, some of the museum's most compelling exhibits are related to the Intrepid's own service at sea. Among them are these four mysterious objects. At first glance, they look like mere mechanical debris, but these are actually the remains of one of the most dreaded weapons of World War II. So what was this weapon, and what role did it play in the history of the USS Intrepid? November 1944, the Pacific Theater. The U.S. Navy and ground troops execute a massive assault on the strategic islands of the Philippines. The objective? Cut the Japanese off from the island's vital resources of food and fuel, forcing them to abandon their position in the area. At the center of the action is the USS Intrepid. An aircraft carrier's purpose is to launch aircraft and safely land them back aboard the ship. The Intrepid could carry about 90 aircraft. Fighter planes and bombers from the Intrepid must carry out raids on shipping and enemy airfields on the island of Luzon. The mission will provide vital support to Allied troops fighting in the region. But the Intrepid is a prime target for Japan's latest deadly weapon, the kamikaze. Kamikaze attack was a new method that the U.S. Navy hadn't really seen before. And basically, the object of the attack would be for the Japanese aviator to crash his airplane into an Allied ship. The airplanes were loaded with bombs or fuel. What they wanted to do was damage the flight deck so that the aircraft carrier would not be able to launch aircrafts against Japan. 
Unlike a torpedo or bomb, the kamikaze pilot could steer their deadly payload toward its target right up to the moment of impact, ensuring it did the most damage possible. These were pilots who were trained to crash their aircraft into ships. But this strategy called for the ultimate sacrifice from the kamikaze pilot. The pilot presumably would not survive if he successfully hit his target. Indifferent to their fate, many Japanese pilots willingly sacrificed themselves, believing they were honorably defending their nation. The job was considered an honor, and pilots performed an elaborate ceremony before departing on their final flight. The unswerving loyalty and dedication of this fearless attack squad made them a formidable enemy of the U.S. Navy. The kamikaze attacks were terrifying for the men who served aboard. And on November 25th, the crew of the Intrepid come face to face with this deadly enemy. At 12.52, the ship's radar picks up two Japanese fighter planes closing in on their location. It's a kamikaze attack. The crew man battle stations, and the Intrepid's anti-aircraft guns take out one of the planes. The other makes a direct hit on the carrier's flight deck. The sailors aboard Intrepid rushed to go and fight that fire and to stop the damage from that attack. Before they could control the fire, two more kamikazes cruise in for an attack. Again, the first one is shot down, and the second slams into the ship. Crashed through the flight deck and really took out many of the men who were fighting the first fire. The Intrepid is crippled, its flight deck destroyed, its innards scorched, and the loss of life is heavy. 69 men lost their lives. It was the single worst day for loss of life aboard Intrepid. Today, this tragic moment is commemorated by four unique artifacts recovered from the burning wreckage of the Intrepid's flight deck. The kamikaze artifacts that we have in the collection are really Bits and pieces or souvenirs of the aircraft that crashed into the ships. And these were objects that were taken from the planes by the sailors who were serving aboard the ship. These were 19-year-old men, many of whom who have never been away from home and never even been on a boat experiencing these amazing attacks. So they would take a little piece in a way as a memento of what they experienced. 65 years after the end of World War II, these pieces of debris, collected by men who bore witness to history, maintain a place of honor on the USS Intrepid Museum in New York City as a tool to teach a future generation about the sacrifices of war. Across the country, in Seattle, Washington, there's an object that tells the story of another fiery catastrophe. It may look like a piece of junk, but this is the pot that changed Seattle forever. Find out how on Mysteries at the Museum. Seattle, Washington. This gleaming metropolis is 160 years old. Today, the Museum of History and Industry tells the story of the city's rise to prominence. But of the thousands of artifacts represented here, none played a bigger role in shaping Seattle's history than this 120-year-old pot. It's cast iron, and it's about 
eight inches high. It may look like a piece of junk, but this is the pot that changed Seattle forever. So how did this humble iron pot alter the shape of history? The story starts over a century ago when Seattle was at the heart of the Pacific Northwest's logging industry. Spring, 1889. Every month, hundreds of people flock to this industrial hub looking for work in the city's burgeoning lumberyards. The woods were so deep and rich with old-growth timber, so timber cut from the woods outside Seattle was milled here in the city, and then it was shipped all around the world. It is this abundant resource that transforms Seattle itself into a sprawling city built out of wood. The buildings were almost all cobbled together pretty quickly because there was a buck to be made, there were people coming to town, there was business to be done. That spring, well over 500 new buildings are under construction in the city's flourishing business district. But on the afternoon of June 6th, shopkeepers and residents notice something alarming. A thick pall of smoke is rising from a workshop in the heart of downtown. There's smoke billowing everywhere. People were just stunned. To the horror of onlookers, a raging fire has already begun to engulf the neighboring buildings. Firefighters rush to the scene, but by 3 p.m., only 45 minutes after witnesses first noticed smoke, the entire block is ablaze. The fire was all-consuming. The heat was felt by people who were blocks and blocks away. Firefighters do their best to combat the inferno, but it's a losing battle. After an hour, most residents fear that downtown will be lost. Within hours, 60 square blocks of what was downtown Seattle was leveled. By the end of the day, it's clear that Seattle is doomed. The fire was too big. There was no way to break it except to let it expire on its own accord, which is ultimately what happened. The next morning, the fire has burned itself out. And for the thousands of residents who have been forced from their homes, daylight brings a tragic sight. Seattle in the morning after the fire kind of looked like the moon. It was a lunar landscape of destroyed buildings, of pockmarked streets. Here was the biggest city in the Northwest, suddenly reduced to rubble. Although they have lost everything, amazingly, no one is known to have been killed. Amid the smoldering ruins, shell-shocked survivors can only wonder as to what or who started the blaze. And the search was on. Let's find the person responsible. Let's pin the blame. Within hours, local journalists begin investigating and tracking down the people who worked near where the smoke was first spotted. Soon, they come across an employee from a cabinet shop, a young Swedish immigrant named John Back. He actually admitted that he started a fire. Astonished, the journalists immediately demand an explanation. They found out where the fire started, and it all began in this pot. This is the pot Back describes to the reporters. He explains that on the day of the fire, he began work by heating this pan over an open flame. His particular assignment that day was, was to heat glue. They used glue in those days to bind together pieces of furniture, and this pot had the glue that was being heated on a stove. 
Beck was stirring and stirring, and unfortunately, either he stirred too hard or he lost attention. The pot spilled over, the glue spilled out, and the flames ignited the wood chips that lay on the ground of this cabinet-making shop. John Back and his co-workers were lucky to escape the fire that engulfed the cabinet shop. Not only consumed the cabinet shop within minutes, literally, but within hours, Seattle was burned to the ground. Not long after telling his story, Back leaves Seattle, fearing for his life. After his interview was printed in the newspaper, he disappeared. He wasn't really heard from again. But rather than dwell on the tragedy, Seattle citizens band together to make plans for the future. There was a sense of profound determination to rebuild into something that was better. The whole city got mobilized. We called it the Seattle spirit. Construction on a new and improved city quickly begins. But builders are forbidden to use wood fireproof materials. The brick and stone were mandated in all new buildings. And within two years after the fire, over 3,000 new buildings were constructed. So by the 20th century, Seattle almost overnight had become a major American city, very wealthy, very prosperous, and growing very fast. From tragedy to transformation. Today, more than a century after the Great Fire, This glue pot at the Museum of History and Industry will forever symbolize Seattle's majestic rise from the ashes. From Seattle's lofty skyline to the death-defying heights of stunt flying, how did this airplane give rise to the eccentric aviation phenomenon of wing walking? Find out next on Mysteries at the Museum. In Dearborn, Michigan, not far from Detroit, the Henry Ford Museum specializes in trains, planes, and automobiles of all kinds. Many of these machines have crossed the globe on legendary adventures. But one artifact on display tells a story that would raise the pulse of even the most daring thrill-seeker. It's a 1917 Curtis JN4, a 27-foot, 1,400-pound wooden airplane. When you first encounter this subject, thing you notice immediately is it's upside down. This outlandish exhibit is displayed this way because in its heyday, this is how most people saw the plane. The Curtis JN4 is one of the most important airplanes in the history of aviation. The JN4 was conceived as a basic training airplane, but through the strangest of circumstances, it inspired a high-tech flight procedure that is still in use today. How did this primitive plane launch one of the most bizarre chapters in aviation history and help revolutionize air transportation along the way? 1917, World War I becomes the first military conflict in history to make widespread use of airplanes. As the United States prepares to enter the war, the U.S. Army begins recruiting for something they've never needed before, pilots. But to train their novice recruits to fly, the military needs to acquire a new fleet of planes, and fast. A New Yorker named Glenn Curtis has just developed a simple, easy-to-fly, two-seater plane called the JN-4. The JN-4 could be produced in large numbers relatively quickly. It was not inordinately expensive, which is important if you want to produce a lot of them. The Curtis JN-4 became the standard training aircraft in World War I. 
From 1917 to 1919, 2,700 JN-4s go into production, and thousands of young Americans train on them to become pilots. Among them, 21-year-old Omer Locklear. Locklear becomes one of the Army Air Corps' most skilled pilots and also earns a reputation as a daredevil. And on one training flight, he performs a mid-air maneuver that changes aviation. There's a story of Omer Locklear in a plane where the radiator cap came loose. And Locklear climbed out of the cockpit, climbed over the cowling, grabbed the radiator cap, screwed it back on. Uh, So he was solving a practical problem. Locklear's stunt catches on, and the practice of leaving the cockpit mid-flight is quickly termed wing-walking. After the war, Ormer Locklear returns home to the U.S. There, he turns his stunt into a high-altitude show that he hopes will bring him fame and fortune. Locklear begins touring the country, performing all manner of daring aviation tricks to eager crowds. Soon, other pilots are inspired to try wing-walking as well. And thanks to thousands of surplus Curtis JN-4s, they can. Young aviators around the nation begin buying up the training planes. While a pilot flies, wing walkers put on the most shocking air shows anyone has ever seen. In midair, the pilot stuntmen flirt with death on every run. Crowds all over the country are enthralled. Wing walking was one of those things that sort of captured that romance of of engaging in this brand new machine and doing things that had never been possible before. As the sport takes off, wing walkers compete to outdo each other. Part of what was going on here is, as people got accustomed to seeing airplanes fly, then they demanded more and more and more in the way of daring exploits, and the wing walkers were able to provide that. But the shows offer more than just entertainment. In 1921, a wing-walking stunt inspires one of the most important innovations in the history of flight. On a November day, a wing-walker named Wesley May straps a five-gallon can of fuel to his back and transfers fuel to another Curtis JN-4. This stunt becomes the world's first mid-air fuel transfer, and the military takes notice. Two years later, Aided by wing walkers, the U.S. Air Force uses a hose to refuel a military plane for the first time. Within months, the new refueling technique becomes standard, and it's still in use today. In the era when aviation was dawning, these daring stuntmen pushed the boundaries of flight. But the wing walking craze is destined to die out. As you get into the late 1920s and early 1930s, there is increasing government regulation of aviation. By 1936, new safety rules meant wing walking was effectively over, but its legacy lives on. Today at the Ford Museum, visitors ponder the Curtis JN-4, the plane that made wing walking possible. Aviators and innovators, conspiracies and calamities. These are the mysteries at the museum.